who knows that it's really important to understand the times and the seasons that we're in as the body of Christ. And I know we're not talking to the whole body of Christ right now because like, the whole body of Christ is not in this room. But we are members of the body of Christ. And Facebook, people watching on Facebook are also members of the body of Christ if they love Jesus. And so the body of Christ is much bigger than just in this room. But we, if it's important, it's important for us to understand the times and the seasons. First Chronicles 12.32 actually says the men of Issachar, and it's describing some of the men in the, in the tribe of, or in the tribe of Israel, in the nation of Israel. But they understood the time, and they understood what they should do in those times. And so if we can understand the time, we understand how we should respond, what we should do about that time. So since the day a few weeks ago that New York State passed the new abortion law, um, that was something really impactful for me personally um, and really awakened in me a new sense of justice that I've not actually um, really encountered before. And I'm, I'm not talking about necessarily abortion today, but um, it, it did something in me because the following days after this was released, God was asking me a question every day. I didn't understand the question, so I was ignoring it. <laughs> Does anybody ever do that? Like God's talking to you about something, and it's like every day you hear something, or constantly you're hearing this phrase or the scripture, and you're just like, what does this even mean? Like, what? I don't even know. You know, so God was asking me every day, why do you think Jesus turned the temple, the tables over in the temple? Every day, over and over. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know, because like people were like shortchanging the Gentiles and charging too much for doves. Which is also accurate, but obviously when God is asking you a question over and over and over again, there's probably something deeper that I haven't seen or that I don't know. Has anybody ever experienced that where God's asking you a question like over and over and you're just like, I mean, I know the answer, and I can't, but if he asks again, maybe that's not the answer at it in its fullness. Has anybody ever experienced that? Yeah? You can engage. You can say, yeah, I have. Um, and so... I'm walking through the theological answer in my mind, like, over and over. Well, yeah, I mean, the temple, and there was the Gentile Jews, and the eunuchs, they can't go into the temple, and so people are, you know, selling stuff for too expensive and kind of keeping them from being able to worship God. That's kind of like the, the historical context, right? And so it seemed really off topic, but I just kept pushing it off. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break this down in a shorter time than I, than I would typically want to teach something like this because of, because of time. But um, I'm going to give you the short answer, and then I'm going to break it down. I'm going to tell you the answer that God took me to after days and days. Then we're going to go through scripture and actually understand more about what God is actually saying to, I believe, the church right now, um, which would include our church. Um, and so the short answer is, what made Jesus turn over the tables in the temple? The answer is hypocrisy. The answer is hypocrisy in the church. The answer is hypocrisy in our lives and hypocrisy in the church in general. Now, who knows what hypocrisy means? Who, who knows? I mean, we hear that word, right? Hypocrisy is to pretend, to fake something. Fake religion keeps people from God, right? Don't you agree? Has anybody ever had a friend? How many people left the church when they were young because they saw hypocrisy in the church? Yeah. Because you saw somebody that you thought was great, you thought they loved God, then you actually get around them and you realize that they have like a secret, crazy, secret life. And then you're like, what the? And then, and then you're wondering, is God real? Does any of this matter? I'm just going to leave. You know? And that's happened, actually, to, uh, to a lot of people, not just a few. And, and Jesus is not, um, this is not his heart for the church. 
Because hypocrisy repels people away from God. It actually keeps people away from knowing the Father. And his heart is to know every single person in the world because of how much he loves us. And so when there is hypocrisy in the church and when there's hypocrisy in our lives, it breaks his heart because of how it pushes people out of his presence. Does that make sense? So hypocrisy is from the word in Greek that means to wear a mask. And it means it's like from the plays that they would do in Greece where the actors would put on a mask to conceal their identity pretending that there's something else. So that's where the word hypocrite comes from. So it's basically willfully pretending to be something that we are not. Now I want to make a distinction though because it's not ignorance. Right? Ignorance is when you actually don't know what's right. Who's ever been ignorant? I've been ignorant about all kinds of, I, feel, I feel like I'm ignorant all the time. Like God is constantly like, you, sir, you didn't know this? He doesn't talk to me like that. But I feel like, I didn't know this. I've read the Bible like all these times. I don't know how to live. You know, so we're all like on a journey of ignorance. Does that make sense? So we're all constantly learning and coming into new revelation, new things that God is teaching us, new things that he's pulling out of our heart and new revelations of truth. You know, there's sin in my life. I probably don't even know is there. Genuine. And probably you too. You know what I mean? Because God takes us into a new season and he reveals, hey, like, have you looked at this? And you're like, no, I've never looked at that. That's terrible. I don't want that in my life. And he's like, yeah, me either. Let's deal with that. And so that's what it looks like to to journey with God. So we're all in that journey. We're all in that journey. There's nobody here who's like, actually, I've kind of attained it. I am perfection of Christ right now here with us. If so, then we will rebuke you because you are not telling the truth. Um, So all of us are in a journey where there is ignorance still in our revelation of sin, in our knowledge of ourself. And, you know, God is constantly, it's called sanctification, that God is constantly taking us in that, in that space of, of constantly revealing to us more and more of who he is, who we are, how we can serve him, how we can deal with our hearts, you know, to make us more like Jesus. Which, who wants to be like Jesus? Amen. If you don't want to be like Jesus, we want to talk to you after because he's so awesome. Yeah. And I promise that you want to be like him. And I promise that he's amazing. Um, However, okay, ignorance is different than ignoring. So ignorance is we don't know. Ignoring is we do know what's right and we do what's wrong. So one more time, ignorance is I don't know what's right. Ignoring is I do know what's right and I choose what's wrong. Those are different. Those are really different in the Bible. And so all of us, you know, like I said... If we could, you know, if we were to open up our lives and be like, look at everything, you know, all of us would be like, yeah, I could probably work on that. I should work on that. That's, mm, that's not like Jesus. I could do it. I could list off probably 10 things right now in my life I feel like aren't like Jesus yet, you know, and you probably could too. But I do know it's a different thing to be convicted of sin, to know that something is wrong and to ignore it. That's different. So hold that for a minute. So. A part of coming into relationship with Jesus is continuing to grow in humility with God and to invite his leadership in our life. Has anybody, does anybody know what I'm talking about? So I know some people, um, you know, maybe not so truthfully, might have told you that, you know, hey, all you have to do is come to church. All you have to do is like think Jesus is awesome and obey his teaching. Well, not obey his teaching, but just think he's great and, you know, love him the best you can and... Read your Bible sometimes if you have time, and like that's great. Like you're a Christian. Um, well, the Bible has a different a different explanation of what it means to follow Jesus, and it's actually inviting His leadership in our life. Right? He becomes our Savior and our Lord, so He is in the role of leading our life, our choices, our spirit, our heart. 
And it's in our devotion, our humility before God, that we can walk in that process of, of becoming like Christ, that process of sanctification. And we're not questioning all the time, oh my goodness, I accidentally sinned. Am I still saved? Does God still love me? Am I still in the kingdom? Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no question about you know, salvation all the time. But it's more about when we pretend, when we come, but we don't invite the leadership of Jesus in our life. And we don't choose to come under his lordship in our life. Does that make sense? So it's, just, it's pretending. It's like the mask. So you're trying to make people think you're something, but you're not that thing, really deep down. That's hypocrisy. So all of us are on a journey. We've established that. However, all of us are not hypocrites. Just because there's still sin in your life, you're not necessarily a hypocrite. Unless God's convicted you and said, hey, stop doing that. And you're like, no. That is actually when we step into hypocrisy. So God keeps asking me this question over and over and over again. Why did you just turn tables or why did you just turn? And I keep just like in my mind, you know, this is like, and I'm giving like the theological answer. Like, because like the Jews, you know, the proselytes and all the Gentiles and stuff. And I'm constantly going over it. And he's like, actually, it's deeper than this. So I want to set the scene of what's going on in Jerusalem. Who's familiar with this, with this story? When Jesus comes into the temple, he flips over all the tables. We're going to read it in a moment. Um, but Jesus flips over all the tables in the temple, and, um, and a lot of other stuff happens. So I'm just going to set the scene of what's going on. So Jesus has just come back to Jerusalem after raising Lazarus from the dead. And he's come basically as, as king, right? This is when we're seeing Hosanna. This is Palm Sunday. Mm-hmm. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. People have got the palm leaves. He's coming. He's just like kind of hit the high point of his career. It's going to be a super quick low point like later in the week. But this is the high point. And he's coming in and everybody is pumped. They're like, Jesus is Lord. Like the Pharisees are not pumped. And they're like, oh, we got to kill him now. You know, and this is kind of what sparks the crucifixion actually. It says after Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees decided everybody, if we don't kill him, everybody's going to believe. And so he comes back into Jerusalem riding on the donkey. And it says in, um, that's where I'm going to kind of, well, I'm not going to pick up yet. So he comes in. week later, he is going to be crucified. Um, Passover preparation has begun in Jerusalem. So at Passover, it was one of the appointed times in Israel. Everyone came back to Jerusalem from wherever they were from in order to, um, to make preparation for Passover and to celebrate Passover as the people of God, right? So God would call Israel back to Jerusalem. So it'd be like a time of pilgrimage. So everyone's coming back. Now we celebrate Passover as a community. Um, but one thing biblically that's a little bit different than what we would do is Passover is a time, the time of preparation for Passover is actually much of a bigger deal almost than the meal itself. It takes a while. And the Jews actually go through their home they clean it so well, like, like kind of the spring cleaning type thing. I'm talking turning over mattresses, opening up the drawers, like everything. They clean everything because the point is to get rid of leaven. So the Bible has a lot to say about leaven, but they're cleaning everything in their house to get rid of leaven. In the Bible, leaven represents sin. Leaven represents hypocrisy. So they do everything in the physical sense, right? And really, it's a spiritual picture. So many things that God commands Israel to do are a spiritual picture, of something else, right? So we can learn from the things that God commands in the Old Testament. So he's commanding Israel, clean your house. So th- this is the time that Jesus comes back to Jerusalem. They're in the leaven. They're, in, they're, they're cleansing themselves of leaven. Do you know, like a lot of Jewish people, they actually buy new clothes just in case a crumb of bread is on their old clothes. That's how serious 
the getting rid of leaven out of your house, out of your life, because it's meant to be a picture of being a clean vessel for God. It's meant to be a picture of the introspection that's supposed to take place before you celebrate the lamb that was slain, before you take communion, which is now the picture of communion, right? This is why we say, clean your heart out, like forgive people, like do all this stuff before you receive communion. Because it's actually a big deal as we step to the table of God and celebrate the life and the body and receive the sacrifice of Jesus. That we should do that with a clear conscience. So this is the time that Israel is in. And in Mark 8.15 and in Luke 12.1, he warns us of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now the leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, both politically and religiously. So I'm going to read Mark 11. You can turn there if you have a digital or a paper Bible. If you have a digital Bible, you can select it. If you have a paper Bible, you can turn there. Okay. All right, Mark 11. And I'm going to start in verse 11. Ooh, 11, 11. Ooh, who's in transition? Okay. Um, 11, 11. So what's just happened is Jesus just came in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. So it says in verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please remember that verse. I think it is so funny. Can you imagine? So Jesus rolls in. He goes into the temple. He looks around, but it's already late. So he leaves. Remember. Remember. All right. The next day. So Jesus goes back to Bethany with the disciples. It says in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. Because it was not the time, the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts. So he's back at the temple again now. So that's some time to think about it. He's back the next morning. And he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables in the temple courts. Oh, sorry. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? Two things he says. Um, as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer. Hang on one sec. said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So he makes two comments. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. All right, and then it goes on, but I'm not going to read more because I don't have time to actually break it down, so it wouldn't add anything at this point. But we've got like a sequence that happens here, right? So the triumphal entry, Jesus comes back. He's the king. He goes into the temple. He looks around. He doesn't really have time right then to like really turn it all up, so he leaves. He comes back the next day. He sees a fig tree and leaf because he's hungry. He goes to the fig tree. There's no figs. 
curses the fig tree, goes to Jerusalem, goes in the temple, turns over the tables, makes two comments, leaves the temple, sees the fig tree again, and affirms, yeah, the fig tree is dead. It's withered from the root because I cursed it, right? So, who understands that a fig tree in leaf should have figs? If you don't understand that, it's probably because we're not from Jerusalem. I didn't know that either till recently, but a fig tree that's full of leaves has figs. Why, why would Jesus curse a fig tree when it's not even the season for figs? Because it's pretending to have figs. It's pretending. It's giving off the appearance, I have figs, and if you're hungry, you can eat from this tree. So Jesus goes to eat from the tree and realizes it's, been de- it's deception. It's hypocrisy. This tree is saying and projecting, I have figs. Even though it's not the right season for figs, I have figs. So upon turning up to see where the figs are, there are no figs. And so Jesus curses the fig tree and says, never will anyone eat from you again. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, he's actually, it's a picture of the hypocrisy of Israel. Right? So then Jesus goes into the temple courts. Now, like I said before, people were taking advantage, right? So somebody who was a Gentile, which means they weren't Jewish, or somebody who is a eunuch, which means they've been castrated to serve in the house of the king, or in the castle. They were not allowed to go into the temple. They were only allowed to be in the outer court. And so in order to bring their sacrifices, or in order to, to worship, they had to remain on the outside of the temple. They couldn't go in to where the presence of God was. And so they were not allowed to go inside the temple to buy their sacrifices and do all the things they needed to do. They had to do it in the temple court. And so people were taking advantage of these outsiders and cheating them basically out of money and charging them too much for the money chain and selling the doves at extravagant prices and all this kind of stuff. And so what that was doing was it was keeping people from worship, keeping people from being able to encounter God as outsiders. Does that make sense? So when Jesus comes in, that's why he's so mad. He's furious. Can you imagine Jesus? Everybody's like, he's the Lamb of God. Like, yeah. And also, he's a guy who's like flipping tables. And like, that's how mad he is at religious fakeness. It's like one of the only times we literally see Jesus demonstrate the righteous anger of God. And it's toward fake religion. And so Jesus... So there's there's two... Hello? (laughs) Baby. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. Um, and so there's there's a picture here of the temple. Okay, there's injustice happening in the temple. Jesus comes in, he's angry. Now in the Bible, what does the temple represent? The temple or a house. It represents the body of Christ, right? The church, the people of Israel. And the temple also represents us, right? Does the temple represent us? Yeah. The whole a house of God, the temple of God. Jesus, when he rose again from the grave and sent his spirit out, his spirit came to live inside his new temple, our heart, right? Now, there also is a practically the body of Christ, the temple of God, which would be the body of Christ as a whole, right? So there's a collective meaning and there's an individual meaning to temple. Does everyone understand? Am I losing anybody? No? You're good? Okay. So... Now, the temple has a different meaning than it did then. The temple means 
the collective church, all of us who are Christians, and us individually, me, myself, as a Christian. So, there's two things that Jesus says, and he describes two kinds of temples. This is really important, and this is actually what I'm going to break down primarily. Can you go to Daddy? That's mommy. I know, but I'm also right here. Okay. Um, Jesus says two things. In verse 17, after he turns over all the temples, it's just kind of like he just sits down and starts teaching. I'm sure people are kind of like a little traumatized, like, what just happened? You know, I don't know that like most people have experienced Jesus like this. Like usually he's opening the eyes of the blind, you know, speaking in parables. Like they just witnessed him like tear up the temple. And then he's just like, all right, well, I'm done. So I'm going to sit down and teach you something. So Jesus sits down and he starts to teach. He says two things. Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. So it comments two different phrases. Are you okay? He says two different phrases. A house of prayer for all nations, that's what my church should be. That's what my temple will be, should be. Or a den of thieves or robbers. That's what you have made it. That's what he's saying, basically. That's why he had to go in there and make a scene. Because of what it had become. Now, in, in Jewish life, when somebody was a rabbi, they would teach differently than you know, today where if I, if I quote like a single scripture, like most people, it's like totally out of context. You know, they're quoting like, I can do all things Christ who strengthens me for like their push-ups that they're doing. It's like, don't let me in that. You know what I'm saying? But back then, that's not the way it worked. So who remembers when Jesus starts his ministry and he stands up in the temple and says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the gospel. Well, when a rabbi stands up and quotes a portion of scripture, they're not just quoting a single scripture. They're quoting a passage of scripture. And to the Jewish hearer, they understand, oh, he's quoting Isaiah, whatever, um, Matthew this, Psalm that, or, well, there was no Matthew. But you know what I'm saying? So they knew that he's quoting a passage of scripture. So Jesus basically highlights two passages of scripture. He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. This is what it will be and should be. But you have made it this, which is what it should not be, but what it has been made into. So in the first passage of scripture, house of prayer for all nations, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 56. So let's go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, I'm going to read 1 through 9 or 8. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Now for those who are like, well, just wait, like I'm going to help because I understand it. It's like Old Testament prophecy. Who keeps their hands from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give them within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to me to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, or sorry, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants. 
all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There we see what Jesus said. The sovereign Lord declares, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. So I'm going to break this down a little bit. Because when I first read it, I was so confused. I was like, I see the part that says house prayer for all nations. I get it. Like, he's quoting that. I don't understand what Jesus is talking about. So here's some things that pop out, right? So Jesus is quoting this. This is what I want my church to be. This is what I want my body of believers, the people that bear my name on the earth. This is who they are. This is their identity. It's not who they are right now, but it's their identity. Who knows that you can be kind of far away from your real identity, but you're on your way there. This is like who he wants them to be, but they're not that currently. So this is who he wants them to be. Maintain justice and do what's right. Justice, integrity. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. He's talking about the revelation of Christ that's coming on the earth. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps my Sabbath without desecrating it. So Jews had a law that you keep the Sabbath, right? When God created the earth, he rested on the seventh day, and then it became a law in the nation of Israel. On the seventh day, we rest. Now in the new covenant, yeah, we can have a Sabbath if we want. I think it's great to do. I think it's healthy. But the picture of the Sabbath is the picture of Jesus Christ. We enter into rest through Jesus. Jesus is the New Testament Sabbath. It's by remaining in him that we remain in rest. Does that make sense? And we live from a place of rest because we're in Christ. So by remaining in the Sabbath, right? By keeping to the Sabbath and not desecrating it and keeping their hands from doing evil. That's talking about holiness, right? We keep our hands from doing evil. So what does it mean then? We, we put our hands toward doing good, not evil. Right? Knowing right and doing right. Then it says, let no foreigners who is, or let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, he'll surely exclude me from his people. Let no unit complain, I'm only a dry tree. In Deuteronomy 23, 1, 1 and 2, you don't have to turn there real quick. Um, this is in the law where, basically the law of Moses, where it says, hey, if you are a eunuch, in other words, if you are not, if you are not able to reproduce, if you are not fruitful, Right? And who knows in the New Covenant, we are not fruitful outside of Christ. There is no fruit that can come from our life that has any eternal value if we are not in Christ, remaining in Him. Yeah. So the eunuch is a picture of the unfruitful, the person who has no legacy on from them. There's nothing they can produce. Right? So then it says, let no foreigner say. A foreigner is a picture of those who are outside of the body. Those who are not yet in Israel. Today, it's not about Gentiles. Obviously, this room is full of all of us. We're all probably Gentiles. So all of us have a place in the house of God, but there are those who are still outside, who have not come in, right? And it's not about their, their ethnicity anymore. It's about their willingness to you know, lay down their life and receive the gift of salvation from Jesus. But there are those who are rejected and excluded. And it says here, let no unit complain. I am only a dry tree. Did we talk about a dry tree? And actually it says withered. I am only a withered tree. Does anyone remember a withered tree? Mark 11. Jesus walks up to the tree, curses the tree, and the tree withers. 
Then later in the, in the scripture, it says it withered from the root. In other words, just so that you make sure you couldn't say that the son did that. It withered from the root. So let no eunuch, in other words, let no one who is unfruitful say, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. Now, can we be fruitful outside of Christ? We already said no. Okay. Those who are in Christ. Oh my gosh, I wrote this note. It's too, it's too much for me. After I look, this is my notes. It's like in my Bible, like sideways. I'm like, hang on, it's here. Um, okay, so Jesus, he cursed the fig tree and it withered. Does everyone remember? He didn't just stumble upon a withered tree. So he's telling here, let no eunuch say, I'm only a withered tree. So don't make a declaration over yourself, you're only a withered tree. However, there is a tree that Jesus will curse. And it's not a tree that is fruitful. It's a tree that's pretending to be fruitful. So he's saying, if you're unfruitful... Don't curse yourself. Remain in Christ, right? This is what it says after. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath. Choose what pleases me. Remain in Christ. Choose what pleases me. Go after holiness and hold fast to my covenant. Obey what I've commanded. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name. I'll give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. He's talking about eternity. He's talking about he'll give them a place within his body. Within his temple, right? Jesus. We have a place within Jesus. So do not say I'm a withered tree. So then he goes on. Whew. I can't. I don't even have time. I don't even have time. Okay. The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord. So those outside. So those who come in. Who choose to minister to him. Now who knows worship is not a song? Worship is the way we live. It's our life. Our life is a sacrifice. Our life is laid down before Jesus. It is our offering. It is our worship to him. Those who choose to minister to the Lord, who love the name of the Lord, intimacy. So worship as our life. Intimacy as our choice to love the name of the Lord. And to be his, what? Servants. That's talking about leadership. That's talking about lordship. That's saying we have come under Christ. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and then it repeats again, hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. What's he talking about? Holy mountain. There's two mountains in the Bible. Hebrews 12, 18. Oh, I, gotta, I gotta put these on my iPad next time. I can't be doing all this. I don't know where Hebrews is. Don't worry. It's in here. Somewhere. Help me. There is Hebrews. I got it. Okay. Before James. I got it. I had a bookmark and then it <laughs> he didn't stay there. Okay. He was what time? Didn't stay in my Hebrews 12, 18. Hebrews 12, 18. This is a passage of scripture about two mountains. Okay, so in the first part part of the scripture. Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they came into the desert and they were uh, encountered basically at Mount Sinai. So remember, in, it's in Exodus 19 that God encounters Israel and encounters them at Mount Sinai. And he says to Moses, basically, hey, consecrate yourself, purify yourself. I'm going to speak to the people tomorrow. 
You know, and the people, they were there at the mountain. God was speaking to them. They were freaked out. So they're like, no, 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 Don't have God speak to us. Just have God speak to you and then tell us what he says. And so this is Mount Sinai, right? So this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. He's talking about the Israelites at Mount Sinai. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned to death. So he's talking about just the holiness of God and the commands around his presence. Because, if it, um, sorry, the sight was so terrifying that Moses even said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come instead to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in, joyfully, in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I don't have time to go into that. I will do it another time. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And when it's talking about our God as a consuming fire, it's talking about he's jealous for our love. He's jealous for our affection. He quotes Haggai 2 in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews. And in Haggai 2, it talks about, um, Haggai is a minor prophet, and he's talking about the glory of the temple, right? And I'm not going to turn there just for time, but he basically says everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. This is what the Hebrews a writer quotes. But then he says, in the former house, there was glory, but I'm getting rid of the former house and I'm establishing a new house, right? We see the two houses again, two temples. I'm establishing a new house where my glory will remain basically forever and ever. And so this is what he's quoting in Haggai, or saying Hebrews. So I'm back to Isaiah. And it's in that place that he'll give them joy in the house of prayer. So we're not having to come to God fearful, right, that if we don't keep the law, he will not receive us. But instead, we come to a new mountain where we can actually receive his grace if we are still trembling and understand our God is a consuming fire. So the grace is from the place of repentance, not from the place of pride. God will not respond to hypocrisy in our life. He will only respond to humble hearts. And so then it goes on at the end of this passage in Isaiah, and it talks about um, talks about there are still others to come. Right? So remember, why was Jesus mad? Because people are keeping people out of his presence. And then it goes on, and I'm almost done, you guys. So I'm almost done just with what I'll be able to teach today. But... I know people are like, I know this is a lot of scripture. It's more scripture than I would usually teach, but literally my message is scripture. So it's like all I can say. <laughs> sorry. Not sorry. I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry. It's good. So then he says in the last verse, verse 8, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. 
What did Jesus want to do? What is the whole point of him's, him, him's coming? I can speak English. What's the whole point of him coming, dying, and being resurrected? That he would gather not only Israel, but all of the nations to himself. So that the eunuchs and the Gentiles and that everybody who's out at that inner court can come into his presence in the Holy of Holies that they were no, not permitted to come into before. Right? Now he's angry because the people right now responsible for them coming in or out are acting in a way that is pushing them out of being able to worship God. The hypocrisy of the temple is pushing them out. But Jesus says, but I want to gather still others who are not gathered. So then he says one other passage. He says, first, this is what I want the church to be. This is what I want the church to be. This is what you've made it, Jeremiah 7. So I'm going to fly through Jeremiah 7, not literally, just figuratively. Jeremiah 7. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, you people of Judah. So he's speaking to the church. Okay? He's speaking to the church. Hear the word of the Lord. You who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly and do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incense to Baal, follow other gods that you've not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has not this house which bears my name been a, become a den of robbers to you? That's what Jesus says. Has my house become a den of robbers? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. And then it goes on. It's like intense, right? You're like, whoa, Old Testament prophecy. However... Jesus says, this is the temple that you have created in the Old Testament, right? And we understand he's talking to the people then. But there's a reason why he's drawing a contrast between Jeremiah 7 and Isaiah 56. One is the temple that he desires, and one is the temple that is full of hypocrisy. And there are certain things that the church is both doing, right? I'm talking about the church in the Bible, Israel, but also can be today. There are things that the church is doing that God says, why do you think it's okay to do these things and then come into my house and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The, th the repetition there insinuates like it's like a chant, like almost how you would use magic. You know, like you say a little magic word and then you're fine. So he's basically commenting on like the false prophets, like the false religious like chants. Just say this and you'll be fine. Do this and you'll be fine. Just show up to church every week and lead a team. You'll be fine. Just, you know, do these things and you'll be fine. Just tithe and you'll be fine. The religious nature that makes us feel safe, he says, you're not safe. <laughs> Repentance is the only way. We're not safe if we do these things. And then he goes on in Jeremiah 7. And then he goes on to, to talk about several things that they're doing in more detail, including which, you know, worshiping idols intentionally, which for us, idols look different today, but they still exist. 
And then he goes on to talk about you're sacrificing your children. You're murdering innocent blood. There's a lot. I can't even go into it in fullness. And I'm telling you, I did not think of this. I did not think of this word. This is not on my heart. This is not in my mind. But God is bringing purity and reform to the inside of the church so that we stop keeping people from him. The hypocrisy in the church is keeping people from really knowing God. And Jesus kind of showed us what he thinks about that. And it's not like I'm calling out anybody specific. I don't even know why God wants me to talk about this. Like, I don't really think we have a hypocritical church. I, like, it's not like I'm really like looking around like, you know, I hope they're listening. Like, I, I don't, you know? I don't think we're running around like a bunch of hypocrites. But I think it is important that we understand the time that the church is in right now and that God is bringing purity to us inside so that he can bring purity to us so that we will not any longer hinder the world from coming to him. He's purging the church right now. Remember, everything that can be shaken will be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And what cannot, what will remain is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I know, it's like a lot. I know it's like a lot of scripts. Like for me, I'm like, I've been thinking about this for weeks. But I know it's a lot. So it'll be on Facebook, hopefully. I also recorded it. But God is wanting us to look inside. We need to actually really look inside. This is not something like, this is not a light word per se. But it's something where we really have a responsibility when God speaks to us in this way to go away and search our heart. Am I a hypocrite? Ask yourself. Like, it's not like everybody else needs to pull you aside. Hey, uh, I see some hypocrisy in your life. Um, don't do that to anybody tonight. Just like eat dinner and like high five and stuff. But go home on your own and please ask God, reveal, Expose and reveal the things in my heart that you are wanting to bring into purity. Because it's not okay. It's not okay to come into the house of God and think the den of robbers that Jesus is talking about here, it's basically a, a, a phrase. Has it become a hiding place for the lawless? Has the church become a hiding place for the lawless? When the Bible talks about the end times, it talks about every people will be lawless, that their hearts will become cold. In other words, we have no regard for the commands of God, for the ways of God, for the word of God. We're doing our own thing, but yeah, we're going to still show up to church. Jesus is like, I don't think so. I don't think so. And so, <laughs> reform is coming, and purity is coming, but it has to start with us. It has to start with our own heart, right? Because we have to overflow. Remember last week, last month, we talked about, hey, the world needs to experience the love of God. It's only going to experience the love of God through us when love is manifested in us. How can love be manifested in us as the community of God? Because we are open. We are willing. We are not like the fig tree. We are not like the fig tree pretending to be something that we're not and not allowing God into the places of our life. We're calling evil what's evil. We're calling good what's good. We are, hey, what God says, I want to say. When somebody asks me, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? The Bible says this. I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm not going to tell you how I emotionally feel about it. I'm going to tell you what the word of God says because what God says is what I want to say. So good. I don't care. But you shouldn't care about my opinion. You shouldn't care about how I feel about it. You should care about what the word of God says if you belong to Christ. Come on. And so, hey, this is how God is asking us to live. And I think all of us can step into this in a deeper way. Can we agree? So all of us are in a different place, and I, I understand. But I hope that I can, I brought like kind of a uh, word with like some love. Yep. Because I love you. Right? 
God's, God's warning in the Bible always comes because of his love, because he is begging them, repent, so that you don't receive judgment. And, you know, we don't talk about judgment a lot, and I don't even have time to really break. So if you want to be in Isaiah 56 temple, put out your hands. I'm serious. Holy Spirit, we know that you're here. We know that your spirit comes to convict us of sin and draw us into righteousness. We know that you have called us to be a holy people, set apart and set aside for your purposes, special unto you, different than the world. That we would honor your, your commands, that we would honor the righteousness that you have called us to live in. Not out of false obligation or out of religion, but out of our love for you. That we would love the name of the Lord. That we would live in intimacy. That we would honor you with everything that we are, God. Bring us to a place where we can live this out. This is hard. This is not always easy. But God, bring us to a place where we would never be something that we're not. That when we're not something, we would acknowledge it. We would in humility say, you know what? I don't have this together. I don't have this part of my life together. Help me, God. Let us remain in a place of humility so that we can continue to receive grace. Because when we step into pride, we have cut off grace to our life. And so we want to live in a place where we can receive your grace and become like your son. Because Jesus is the only hope of this city. Jesus is the only hope of this world coming into relationship with you. And I do not want my life and we do not want our lives to be a hindrance to people knowing the Father. So God, let us come into a place of holiness and come into a place where people are drawn and attracted to your spirit, to your life, to your word because of the way that we live and the way that we demonstrate your presence and your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.